Passionate DJ Podcast, where we are becoming better DJs through passion and purpose. And now your host, David Michael. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. I'm your host, David Michael, and I'm hanging out with the one, the only, Mr. Tony DeSero. Hey, what's up? What's up, buddy? Chilling. What's up with you? So I put together this show that's, uh, I'm calling it Trouble in EDM Paradise. And uh, uh, basically, this comes from me doing some research on like lawsuits and litigation and legal troubles and stuff like that that have been happening in the EDM industry and the DJing world and stuff like that. Uh, these are all fairly recent, so mm. it was uh, it was surprisingly easy to come up with a lot of these. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea even this stuff was even happening. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Um, you know, I, I started just, I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, eh, what do I want to record this week? And I'm scrolling through uh, some, you know, news sites and stuff, and I was like, lawsuit, lawsuit, legal trouble, club shut down. I'm like, holy moly. Wow. So I just kind of started compiling them all and uh, figured we could bring them in and talk about them today. Yeah. So um, we've got quite a few of them. So I'm definitely I'm just, not an attorney. Yes. <laughs> or know anything much about lawsuits, but I can help. I'll try to anyway. Uh, so yeah, well, we've got quite a few. So we'll, we'll just jump straight into it and skip past all the uh, intro stuff today. Uh, do you remember Fire Festival? Yes. Fire with a Y. Yes. That <laughs> so, hot mess. Yeah, we're going to start there. Okay. <laughs> So they uh, they had a successful lawsuit against Fire Festival, the first ones. So uh, this guy Seth Crosno and uh, Mark Thompson had a successful lawsuit against Fire Festival to the tune of five million dollars. Holy moly! Now who are these guys? They were uh, <clears throat> uh, what do you want to call them? Survivors. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> the they were festival. they were patrons. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So they uh, they were awarded five million dollars in damages, and the way that broke out was each of them got a million a million and a half each in compensation, like damages, and then they each got an additional million in punitive damages for flights, hotels, and pain and suffering, mental anguish. Okay, so question: Who paid for that? Who who paid for the who paid for the the winning of the lawsuit? So oh, for the winning of the lawsuit. Yes. So those guys won. Who paid for that? Because obviously the fire festival didn't have the money. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it's uh, so I have a an excerpt here from Mixmag, and it says in the lawsuit, Crossno and Thompson reportedly spent about thirteen thousand dollars for their VIP fire festival experience, which included all access wristbands and a luxury residence. Uh, they were promised four rooms and a living area on the private island. The decision was made in Billy McFarland's absence, as he reportedly has not responded to court proceedings for over a year and is currently in jail. He currently faces a 40-year sentence for fraud charges. Festival co-creator Ja Rule was originally also named in the lawsuit, but was later removed as part of an, of an agreement between the parties. Of course. <laughs> uh, so, like, who's going to pay it? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, obviously those guys don't have the money or they would have thrown the festival proper. Right? Yeah, and they're they're not like the only ones that are bringing lawsuits, right? They're just like the first ones who got yeah, it. Got the award. Yeah. Right. So the uh, for those who uh, don't remember, the Fire Festival was meant to be a luxury music festival to promote this, uh, this app called Fire, some kind of music booking app. And regular admission was $1,500. The attendees were promised luxury villas. They called them modern geodesic domes. 
gourmet meals from celebrity chefs and a few days of amazing music but what they actually got was like disaster relief tents with dirt floors (laughs) (laughs) and like wet mattresses no housing assignments they had uh let me see an unfinished lot missing staff no cell phone or internet service they had to use portable toilets they didn't have water and like their food was these (laughs) these, like processed cheese sandwiches (laughs) on wheat Wow. They had no medical personnel. Yeah, it was a mess. Yikes. Uh, many, you know, many people got stranded. On so the these $1,500 tickets, were they general admission or yep. was it a. Wow. But it, inc- so they included like, uh, well, I know that the VIP experience included like uh, flights and stuff like that. Okay. But it was, it was definitely like a, uh, like a rich Instagram kid kind okay. of festival. Okay. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, it was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I thought that was interesting. They they just they mentioned Jaw Rule briefly, like uh, he was later removed as part of an agreement. Like right, I I, I don't know. About interesting, that, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Behringer, they've been getting uh, a little litigious. They uh, they threatened this Chinese uh, tech blog. It's called MidiFan. Okay. Because the site used words like shameless and copycat when they were describing some of their products. So the Chinese site the, used these words against Behringer? Yeah. Okay. Because so they, they just released a clone of the the eight oh eight. Okay. And they called it the R D eight oh eight. So MIDI fans headline read Shameless. Behringer exhibit copycat of TR eight oh eight SH one oh one Pro One and Odyssey. So a week later uh, so they go after them, and then a week later, they go after... Have you ever heard of the forum called Gear Sluts? Yes. It's been around for years and years. Mm-hmm. So they're like pro-audio uh, pro audio community. Mm-hmm. A week later, they tried to sue 20 members of that forum, including, uh, you know, Dave Smith Instruments. I don't. So a while back, we talked about the the Torres SP-16, which is like Pioneer's little sequencer sample thing. Yeah, okay. So that was like a Dave Instruments collaboration. Okay, so they, they do synths and drum machines and stuff like that. So I guess uh, their engineer, Tony Caravitas, Carav- was an active participant on the forum in these conversations, and they were, they're suing them for libel, defamation, stuff like that. So they, let me see, they, yeah, they're seeking $250,000 in damages. The suit was filed on June 9th in San Francisco County Superior Court, but the court rejected it, like, right away. They said sure. that the, uh, all the claims are based on statements that were made in a public forum on an issue of public interest. Right. So, I mean, Behringer going after them for $250,000 sounds like like a fart in the wind if you ask me you know what i mean it's like if you're really going to go after somebody why a quarter million go after them when you're that big of a company yeah. you're going to want to press more of the issue and go after more money you know but it just to me i don't want to get sued but uh, yeah <laughs> it sounds to me and it's it's like anything else the way anything that's invented these days you know you have the next person that might shift an inch here or an inch there, or this line might yeah. go left to right instead of right to left. And look, now we have something completely different. Yeah. You know what I mean? So Behringer to take this drum machine and call it, what is it? The RD-808 instead of the TR-808. So let me ask you this. People that talk about the 808 
which I just did. You didn't hear me say TR. Right. You just heard me say 808. Cause that's what everybody knows, right? Yeah. Okay. So are people going to say RD 808? No, they're going to say 808. And to me, it's, yeah, it's a copy. Like, yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> yeah, I also want to be careful about how I word this if they're going after the little guys, but <laughs> <laughs> like Behringer does, even in the DJ community, they have a history of making hardware that is, shall we say, a tribute to other <laughs> similar hardware, right? Yeah, it's like it's twin sister. Yeah, like <laughs> like Pioneer Mixers maybe, yeah. for example. So, I mean, I, I kind of see why somebody would mention that i i'm pretty sure when i saw you play at pearl um which is a local club here in our city used to be um i could have sworn you were playing on a behringer mixer somewhere but i thought when i first saw it i thought it was a pioneer 500 because it was the silver it looked like yeah, just like, like the pioneer and i was just like whoa like even the effects button yeah it's it, like to a T almost. It literally is like a, a clone, at least appearance-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it seems like sketchy territory, but the way the law works, you actually, like once the patent expires after like 25 years or something, you're mm-hmm. allowed to do whatever you want. With right. It. So they're they're within their legal rights mm-hmm. to, to do it. Now, whether you agree with the business practice or not, you know, you can leave that up for the listener to decide. But Right. <laughs> I thought that was interesting that they were like they were going after forum members. Like, put that two hundred fifty thousand into something a little more smarter. Yeah, a little smarter within your company, maybe. Yeah. Like, why are you worried about what some kid or some guy or girl says a gazillion miles away about your company? You know, like why? See, to me, that gives it, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth for for Baron. For Baron, right? It's like, are, is are things that bad that you got to go after the little guy? You know, it's. They're a big company, and when it comes to pro audio, I mean, they, it mm-hmm. seems like they'd be able to handle a few negative comments, right? You know, I mean, you should you should, you should expect that in anything that you put out for the public to review or talk about. I mean, especially online these days, you know, you have people that may like the product and just want to troll you and talk trash about it anyway, yeah. just to get a rise out of people. So in today's internet world, like, like, why, why wait? I mean. Why waste your time in lawyers and, and sending all this stuff out that you know you're going to have to pay litigation fees mm-hmm. for all of these attorneys and lawyers and, you know, your travel time if you have to go to court? Like, why would you even, like, it makes no sense to me. I, I guess it gets them the headlines and, you know, Behringer's top of mind now. We're talking about them. Right. But, you know, is are we talking about them in a way that makes us feel good about Behringer? You know, I, I don't know. Mm. It d- depends on the... I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll just keep that to myself. Because Behringer is awesome. <laughs> uh, Pulse Nightclub. We have to talk about them. There was uh, uh, victims of the, the shooting there. They issued a lawsuit against Orlando and the, the police department. So, uh, you know, this was one of the deadliest mass shootings in modern American history. There were 49 lives taken, 68 injured. And uh, This happened on June 12, 2016. Well, according to ABC News... The lawsuit was uh, filed by 34 plaintiffs. Nine of them were survivors who were apparently detained by police as they ran out of the nightclub. Mm. The claim is that the Orlando police officers violated the rights of the survivors during the attack. Now, the only uh, officer that they mentioned by name was a guy named Adam Gruler, but they actually had like 30 other officers in the lawsuit. Okay. Gruler said to have been at Pulse, quote, at all pertinent times and was charged with providing security to Pulse. Instead, he abandoned his post, 
thereby allowing the shooter to not only enter the club once to scout out the area and make sure nobody could stop him, but to then leave Pulse, retrieve his firearms, and return to execute a sinister plan to kill people. So attorney, attorney, <laughs> attorney Solomon Radner had this to say, while people unarmed, innocent, were inside a club getting absolutely massacred by a crazed gunman, there were a bunch of people with guns with the training and capability to take that shooter out. Instead of doing their job, they worried about themselves, they stayed outside, they worried only about their own safety, knowing that people were literally getting mowed down by the dozens just a few feet away. Uh, yikes. That's, man, that's hard to even hear. It is. It's. I remember that, too. Like, it was, man, it was, that's a sad thing. Yeah, and it's it's like we can sit and, and speculate over what the officer was doing, mm-hmm. right? But, like, you and I sitting here in Ohio are never really going to know. Right. So it's like it's so easy to get outraged, but it's like, what was really happening? Mm-hmm. You know, was he ducking because bullets were flying over his head right. or, you know, and it's, it's just really rough. And I, I feel for these victims and, and I understand their, so their want for, you know, some kind of, I don't want to say retribution, but closure or, or whatever. Right. Um, so they're stating that the officer or officers did not do their job properly. They yeah. ran from the whole situation, yeah. is what they're saying. Seems like it's like a negligence type lawsuit. Sure. Um, man. Does the club normally have officers in the club during working hours? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it, so they say that this, uh, what was his name? Adam Gruller. Mm-hmm was was charged with providing security so who who knows what that means okay so he's providing so he's either owns a private security firm that handles you know or does he work for the club uh or is he an outsourced I, he's a he's a police officer off duty or on duty yeah at the time? that's a good question it doesn't really say because even if you're if you're off duty i don't know if you have to Maintain a specific, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, if you have to do in detail what you're supposed to do when you're in a uniform, mm. does that make sense? So, if you're not in uniform, are you supposed to run in there and handle the situation, or are you supposed to sit back and call in until? Yeah, I, I really don't know how that works. Um. I, 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 it, it's different everywhere. Um, I mean, if he's an, if, if he's an off duty police officer and he may own a security firm or he works for a security firm as well as yeah, his other be. job and he just hires security, then their obligations may not be the same as an actual police officer. Right. Right. I, like I don't, if he's working as a contractor. Or something. Right. Right. So I don't. I don't, I don't know. I can't even speculate at all in that situation. Um, the, the other thing that kind of bugged me about it was that, so it said, instead he abandoned his post, thereby allowing the shooter to not only enter the club once to scat out the area and make sure nobody could stop him, but then to leave Paul's retrieve his firearm. Like, if somebody walks into a club and looks around, why would you stop them anyway? Right. You know, like already I'm kind of like, that's a little bit of a red flag for the conversation that we're having here, because mm-hmm. if somebody walks around and looks, I, what do you, that guy looks kind of shooty. Like, what, what do you do? I you know, know people that 
we'll walk in a club and look around to see if it's hopping, to see if something's going on. Yeah. And then turn around and go out and tell their friends, yeah, it's a good time. Let's 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 I, pick I've this spot. It. Yeah, you know, let's let's pick this spot or whatever. So how can you really speculate the fact that this guy was walking around the club saying, Oh, okay, I know I'm gonna shoot people, this is where I'm gonna do it from and blah blah yeah. blah blah blah. Yeah, and, and you know, let, let's be clear. Like, I, I definitely do not want to say, you know, I'm not trying to say anything against the, the victims or the people, right, right. You know, the plaintiffs, you mm-hmm. know, because everyone else involved here has more information than I do. Yeah, I feel for you them know? 100%. And I just like, even if any of them are, are, are listening or listening to this, you know, I don't want them to say, oh, well, you know, F you, you didn't know, or you weren't there when all this was yeah. going on. Like, again, all I can do is speculate the whole situation and, and try and understand both both sides yeah. you know the, the one thing that we know is that the, the shooter was the asshole yeah right? absolutely everything else is from here we can only speculate yeah you know? and you can't really say why didn't this guy do this or do that until you're in that situation right because really like right. your mind is racing you have no idea what's going on you're scattering for everything it's easy with hindsight and mm-hmm. when you yeah to to start pointing fingers and stuff. So, right. But at the same time, I mean, this, this could be an extreme case of negligence, Mm -hmm. you know, and we, we just don't know either way. Right. It it could have been somebody who, you know, completely just ran from the scene and was never (laughs) seen from again for all, you know, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's, boy, that sucks though. It's just, yeah, it's not a good situation at all. I mean, I, I feel for those people, man, it's just, it's, you know, as soon as that happened, Luke, which owns mask here, which is a huge gay club in, in Dayton. Um, he put, man, he put a metal detector at his front door. Oh, is that when he did that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was the weekend right after that. Wow. Um, he's had a bunch of SWAT trainings in there. Like he'll bring the SWAT team in a couple of times a year and they'll do, ta- they'll do, they'll do trainings with the club lights going on, the smoke, the loud music. Oh, so yeah. they know, you know, in that situation what to do. Um, and he also has, Everybody that comes through the front door, there's a camera um, at the front door, and you scan your ID. So he sees everybody that comes through the front door, and if something is to happen in the club that night, he's got, you know, something happens to a girl or, you know, a fight breaks out or whatever, and the person gets away, he knows exactly who that person is. Mm. You know what I mean? They have they have the ID and the facial recognition and everything through it. So, Is, is that something, I mean, does he divulge as much as you can but um is that common i mean does he just call ring up the police department like hey can you do some swat drills in my club um, how does how do you get yeah no he, yeah he he wants that yeah he wants them to do that and they they love him for doing that okay um he does he does call them up and say hey let's let's make this and it's it really really sucks that he has to do that but i'm so glad he is oh yeah like that's, yeah, he takes a lot of precaution. The, the fact that he that he cares enough and is you know the I didn't know that until you just told me. Yeah, and so it, the fact that people don't know, but he's behind the scenes. He wants to make sure everything's fine and safe. Mm-hmm. It, it says and a lot about. I him. mean, it could even be, you know, take away the most extreme, the shooter situation, or you know, somebody getting shot, or this, that, and the other, and take it to because the system that he has in place. It's for all bars. So, like, let's say, you know, Johnny was over at such and such bar and just caused a bunch of ruckus over at the bar, broke a big fight, broke out. He was to blame. He left, whatever. And then 
decides to come to mask. All that runs through the computer. So when that guy comes into mask to try and get into mask, they know who this guy is and what's going on. <laughs> Cause he's a multi multiple <clears throat> venue owner. Yeah. Not yeah, even multiple venue owner. It's on a network. So oh, if, I see. if another just bar owns that same software and everything and Johnny creates uh, a fight over there and wants to come over here, it pops up when he goes to come in. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So it's like a I mean, Luke's the only one. Yeah, something. Luke's the only one that I think owns it in Dayton, of course. Because <laughs> <laughs> like he owns half of the right. venues in Dayton, so it's right. fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. There's wow. Uh, he, he's got a lot of safety precautions set in place for there. That's good. That's yep. good. Um, I have one more lawsuit, uh, and it's a little bit not so dark <laughs> as that one. Um, this one. Uh, so, have you seen this this flick on Netflix called Ibiza? No. So, <clears throat> I guess it's like a romantic comedy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so the the Spanish government is suing Netflix. Because they made this rom-com called Ibiza, but they filmed it entirely in Croatia. (laughs) (laughs) So they're suing them for abuse of the Ibiza brand. Okay. And for depicting unfavorable and stereotypical images of the island. So I thought that was interesting because I didn't know a, a country or an island could have a brand that you could sue against i you know what i mean right that's interesting like very interesting is it like ibiza corporation or you know what i mean i mean ibiza is an island yeah i mean maybe they just set their own rules (laughs) we do what we want (laughs) right (laughs) that's strange though yeah so the film follows three friends from new york who leave the city to explore the mystical island with one character sparking up a romantic relationship with a world famous dj it released on Netflix on May 25th to mixed reviews. Have you watched it? I have not. I didn't even hear about it until I saw this article. Makes so me want to check it out. Now I want to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that good could job, be, Ibiza. Now right. we're going to watch that Croatian film about Ibiza. <laughs> I mean, it could have been Ibiza people making that film, saying yep. it and true, true, depicting this lawsuit that's not even real for <laughs> publicity. Backdoor deal with Netflix on All that marketing, one. bud. <laughs> All right, uh, so these are other legal troubles that aren't necessarily lawsuits, but there's a Beirut nightclub that was shut down. It was called The Garden, mm. and it was shut down because there were Koran verses oh. being played over the, the loudspeakers. Really? Yeah. The uh, So their governor judge said that the club was, quote, lacking proper registration and promoting material that offends religious beliefs. So I guess what happened was there was somebody got a video of, uh, it was the German DJ Acid Pauli. Uh-huh. Um, this video got circulated of him allegedly playing verses of the Quran over the speakers. But the uh, the club responded, I think it was on Facebook, the video that was circulated was shot five weeks ago and not during the holy month of Ramadan. I guess that was, uh, they implied that it was. This does not justify what happened. However, it's important to point out the level of, quote, journalism portrayed by the Facebook page that initially shared the video. The audio extract was not of the Quran being mixed with music. It was an extract taken from the radio. The audio clearly shows the switch between local radio stations, which happened to have one of the stations featuring that extract of someone reciting a verse. So I guess it went on for a few seconds, and then that was it, and that just happened to be what was caught on the video. And so I guess he offended a bunch of people by playing it during his set, supposedly. Uh, 
Yeah, the verse that was heard was not recorded in the video, or sorry, the verse that was heard and recorded in the video was not intentional. The artist who is handling the music is German, and neither does he understand the language nor does he link to any religious aspect of this clip. (laughs) (laughs) So is it the, it's, it's a club that's getting sued, not the artist. Yeah, well, they weren't sued, they were shut down by the government. (laughs) Okay. Now, I don't know if they had a chance to reopen or what, but. Yeah, yikes. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I can't imagine being that DJ, too, and not having anything to do with what happened and then suddenly having an entire community like that upset with you. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be pretty wow. pretty scary uh, vacation in Beirut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Yikes. I mean, like, even growing up as a kid, I don't know one good thing about Beirut because all <laughs> I've ever heard is bad things <laughs> happening in Beirut, you yeah. know? I'm not saying that it's a bad country or a bad place to go, but that's all I know. About but it was in, it was ingrained into us in our childhood because yeah. it was a yeah it was a thing. And it was just all out war all yeah. the time, you know, constant battle in Beirut and wow, definitely don't want to mess up there. So there was a once again not a lawsuit but a raid that happened in uh, in Europe. This was a bunch of major musical instrument companies. So there were. There were five different offices. This was on May 26. Uh, they raided the offices of Fender, Yamaha, Casio, Roland, and Korg. So these are big boys, right? Wow. Uh, this is on, what, let's see, May 26. And they were raided by the CMA. That's the uh, Competition and Markets Authority. So they're basically like the British equivalent of the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. Okay. And basically what this surrounds is the idea of uh, MAP, uh, Minimum Advertised Pricing. Yeah, Minimum Advertised Price. So this is like a lot of times when you're like a hardware manufacturer and you're working a deal with a distributor to sell your mixers or electronics or shoes or whatever it is, a lot of companies will bake in this minimum advertised price. Like you can't advertise this for any less than you know 599 or 1199 or whatever the price is Mm -hmm. so uh unlike here in the states this is actually illegal in europe uh so you know the the argument for minimum advertised pricing you know is like we don't want our brand devalued and Mm -hmm. this causes a race to the bottom and the counter argument is this is like price fixing Mm -hmm. right so this is legal in the states, not legal in Europe. So they're suspected of breaching this competition law. So it's not legal in the states, but it is if, legal in the states. Right, right. Yeah. So it, it's it's legal in the states, but if because I was talking to a friend of mine, his his in laws own a music store in Fairborn. And I was just there today. Yeah, getting oh, nice. these mic stands we're nice. using. <laughs> Shout out to Absolute Music. Hey. hey. Um, but um, that's kind of where I learned that term from um, because they do have tons of accounts with tons of different mm-hmm. companies and those companies don't want them to do that. Um, so it's not illegal, but they could lose the account with that company if that company mm-hmm. finds out. Yeah. Which in itself, I mean, that's a punishment in itself. Yeah. I can't imagine. I got, wow. Yeah. So they, I guess they seized computers and records and I, I don't know what the resolution is yet. Uh, but the penalties can include fines up to of up to ten percent of the company's global turnover, so and prison terms of up to five years. Oh, yikes! 
Wow. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> right. So what, what's the benefit of all of those companies selling those products lower and doing that? Uh, well, I mean, if they can undercut the competition, right? Well, for less profit margin, but if they get the sales to make up for it, but who is the manufacturer? Who are they undercutting? Like Roland, for example, who are they undercutting, but themselves, if they're lowering the value? Oh, so the problem is that they're suspected of behind the scenes, still doing these minimum advertised pricing Mm -hmm. requirements, like under the table, even though it's illegal. Okay. So it's their, they're saying you have to sell this for, you know, five ninety nine or I'm sorry, you have to advertise this at five ninety nine or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, or we won't work with you. But that's illegal in Europe to do that. So that's what the problem I is. See. Okay. Uh, allegedly. Gotcha. So but I saw that like prison terms. Like, holy <laughs> that's moly. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> So this is like, you know, map pricing. This is, you know, if you go to Amazon.com and then uh-huh. you, you know, it's like you, you have to add something to your cart to see what the actual price is. Mm-hmm. That's because the advertised price has to be that certain threshold. So it's not a minimum selling price. It's mm-hmm. a minimum advertised price. It's an important distinction. So right. some of these companies you can actually call up and they'll sell something to you for cheaper. You know, they'll give you a 10% discount or something. They just can't advertise it. Um, And that's... That kind of makes sense too when you look at um, at companies and sales. Um, you know, if they have a, a specific sale going on, spend so much, get so much off of your your total spend instead of taking that one item and saying, "Well, this is going to be twenty percent cheaper." Then you're going to get it over here. No, but if you spend this much on whatever you get in our store, we'll give you twenty percent off. Right, right. So I, I can see that. Yeah. Now. But yeah, to under underprice or devalue your 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 own brand, I yeah, just, it makes no yeah. sense to me. I get that like race to the bottom concern too, because you know my other bid bidnits, my other business is in online retail, and so I'm competing with a lot of other sellers that are selling the same product. Mm-hmm. And so when you're competing on the scale of you know an Amazon marketplace, for example. It, it happens fast. Like if you get if you get two or three sellers that are all just constantly dropping the price by a few pennies over and over again, you know, within a couple of days, it's like Shit, none of us are making money now. Right. Like thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. You know. So, you know, I there's a lot of controversy surrounding this. I see both sides of it. Right. You know. But prison time? Yeah. I don't oh, know about prison man. time. <laughs> that ruins a life. Yeah. You know what I mean? It really ruins a life. It's. Yeah, prison seems extreme. Yeah, way extreme. Uh, there was a festival in Sweden. It was called Bravala. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It was also shut down. The permanent closure comes after a flurry of sexual assaults plagued last year's edition. So uh, the company SKP Scorpio claims that much of the reason behind canceling the festival has to do with competition and the need for change, but it's easy to speculate that much of the reasoning is linked to the fact that the 2017 edition was the scene of over four rapes and 23 sexual assaults. 
So according to a PR spokeswoman, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that name, but she said, we have always claimed that it's not a festival problem, but a social problem. How we ensure our visitors' safety is something we're constantly developing, and that's something we'll never finish. I believe we have contributed to people saying, standing up and reporting criminal offenses committed. It's good to know that people show that they do not take shit. Um, this is not what I expected out of a Swedish festival, and I know that that's just my own bias, even if it's a positive bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, you know, you tend to think of of you know Sweden and and you know surrounding countries as you know they're that supposed to be the happiest places to live, mm-hmm. and you don't have these kind of violence issues and stuff. And and apparently this uh, this particular festival has just been a, a hotbed for for sexual assault. Wow. Which is, you know, horrifying. Yeah, very. I mean, you get into those festivals, though. Um, there's a lot of, I don't want to say a lot. I don't want to, like, give a festival a bad name or anything sure. like that. But, I mean, anywhere where there's an exuberant amount of people, whether it be a festival, a club, and everybody's intoxicated. Not everybody, again, sorry. But a lot of people are intoxicated. I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying anything like that. But there's, it's more of a chance for stuff like that to happen. Um, and then you get people to come to the festival that it brings the creeps out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. It really does. Um, I mean, that's unfortunate. I mean, any any big gathering. Or, and how or can you stop thing. that? Yeah. You just can't stereotype, you know? You just, yeah. That's difficult. Well, in Miami, they banned horses from nightclubs. <laughs> was that, the, that, was that an animal cruelty act or something? Yeah, it actually was. So when okay. I when I first heard that, so that the headline was Miami increases animal ban following incident involving a horse in a nightclub, and I just kind of laughed. Like, yeah, shout out to Florida. Right? Yeah, okay. shout out to Kanye West. Probably rode in on it. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was some some woman was riding it, but when I actually saw the clip, I actually it made me kind of it made me mad. Like I stopped laughing. I was like, oh, really? This, yeah, this was a shitty thing to do. The move to strengthen so this comes from Mixmag. The move to strengthen the animal laws was sparked back in March when a nightclub in Miami called the Mokai Lounge let a woman dressed in just a bikini and riding a full-grown horse into the venue. After cell phone footage surfaced revealing that the horse bucked her off and was clearly startled, authorities launched an investigation which led to the venue having its license revoked. The club has since reopened. The incident highlighted the need to specifically legislate a ban on animals being mistreated in nightclubs. Uh, yeah, so when you're watching the clip, and uh, you know, I'll maybe post the, uh, the embed uh, YouTube link in the show notes or something, but like, yeah, it's just like a super crowded, loud Miami club, and this woman's just trotting right through, like parting the Red Sea of people with this horse. Mm-hmm. So it's surrounded by beats and smoke and people yelling and partying, and the horse is like, nope, and it just starts you know, bucking and going crazy, which of course it fucking did. Right. <laughs> like you can't just put an animal like that into that environment. No, that's not how it works. Who did it back in the day? It was uh studio 54. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've ever saw the movie or not. No. But yeah. Um, there was some crazy stuff that happened back then. I'm, um, and I don't know how well, I mean, obviously the movies, there was probably a little bit of Hollywood added to it. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of pictures and I believe in one of those pictures, there was a lady that was on a horse in the club but also at the same time i doubt their systems were anywhere near what they have in the clubs today it's a different time right it was twenty thousand watts (laughs) not two million (laughs) you know um but yeah i mean it's 
I even get like worried when I go to festivals and I see people with service dogs. Yeah. And and just walking around and you know, that loud music, all those people. I mean, those service dogs are trained to be around a lot of stuff like that, but still I look at it like, man, dude, is that not like hurting that dog or Yeah. Or at least making it like I, not have a good time. I couldn't imagine a horse. I've never ridden a horse. Uh, I've been around them. But if you spook a horse in the slightest way, yeah, good luck if you're on it or behind it. Yeah, uh, my daughter Lily, she was t- she took riding lessons for a couple of years, and they were I mean they were adamant about like if you're going to walk down the side of the horse, like touch it here, don't touch it here, let mm-hmm. it know that you're around, you right? Because you I mean you'll get kicked or you know yeah. trampled or whatever. I can't imagine that would feel good. No. <laughs> <laughs> a little rodeo inside the nightclub, <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah, I can I can understand that completely. Yeah, it, it's it's silly that they have to make <laughs> regulations against right. that. But I'm in Miami, baby. <laughs> right, Miami's <laughs> a whole other world, man. All right, I want to uh, this next section it covers a couple of different uh, locations who are. So this is like police fighting against raves again this is like the same old oh, story no. right really so like we talked about this in in the disco donnie clip in fact let's play a clip of that now i watched the uh rise the uh documentary that was kind of about the new orleans scene and, and you coming up and where i guess where does the the subtitle to that documentary where it refers to you as rave outlaw can i ask about that yeah um so back in this was in like 2000. The federal government decided that they were going to run a test case to try to basically shut down the um, shut down raves. And unfortunately, I was the winning winner of that since I <laughs> was using the same venue and very successful every month. And they had this, you know, the DEA and uh, you know a whole team. They followed me for, you know, had my phones and followed me for eight months. And uh, you, what they tried to do was they basically they ended up raiding the show because they thought that we had, we were, you know, their thesis was that we had drugs. We brought the drugs in before the show and then we sold them from backstage. So, you know, they, they came in thinking they were going to walk away with this big, giant, you know, thing of drugs. They opened up all the sound equipment and all the DJ equipment and basically they got one bartender had a joint on it. So all that... <laughs> So they were kind of had a little egg in their face, but they still, you know, were going forward with the case. And basically what they tried to do was they had to try to take a, it was an archaic, an 80s law about crack houses. And it was a way they tried to control, you know, when the crack house epidemic hit, they started trying to put the owners of the houses in jail uh, if they allowed people to sell crack out of the house. I mean, it was, it's, it's a crazy law anyway. But uh, so anyway, they tried to apply that to, to concerts and you know to well to raves and uh so definitely was a definitely wasn't a good thing <laughs> uh, but you know they they were trying to it was zero to 20 for the drugs they, they were buying drugs in the shows and they were just letting those people go and then they were putting it on my oh, my thanks. tally right so it was zero to 20 for the drugs they bought and then it was 20 to life for the cce since they had they had gone to eight shows, so they charged me for every show. So, uh, you know, that was a scary time. No uh, kidding. Luckily, yeah. I mean, and you think about it, that's uh, 16 years ago. I mean, 
a lot's changed since then. You know, what, mm-hmm. you would have said that we had legalized marijuana and gay marriage and right. you know, 16 years ago, people would look at you like you were crazy. So, you know, the world changes, it adjusts, it bears itself, and, you know, that was just a different time. And luckily, I had the, some good friends and the ACLU and a lot of people behind me, and I was able to keep doing shows, all right, and not go to jail. <laughs> I went to jail for one day. All right, so we've been here before, right? This uh, We're going to start in Wales. So that's the, the Dyfed Powys Police. They're the largest police area in Wales and England. They're telling landowners and farmers to keep an eye out for ravers. So they here's the quote from their superintendent, Robin Mason. There's little doubt that these type of events are very well planned, organized, and that the local knowledge is important in drawing down the main group to a particular vulnerable field or area of land which has been targeted previously as a suitable venue. I can assure local communities that police will take the appropriate action to deter illegal gatherings and deal robustly with any criminal offenses discovered or disclosed. So all that being said, even though they're they're doing their best to like stop these rave events, they back in May they actually let a, a two-day illegal rave play out. Uh, they the party kicked off in the early hours of Sunday morning, and police were overseeing it for the entirety. Local reports state that the music came to an end at 6 p.m. on Sunday, but started up again and was its loudest on Monday morning. So I guess the police let it continue because they felt it that they couldn't safely remove everyone because mm-hmm. it was just packed out. Mm-hmm. So instead, they, they just blocked the main road to the rave and stopped more people from entering mm-hmm. and just made sure that the, the thousand people or so that were there were safe. Right. Which makes good for them, right? Makes a hundred and more than that. It makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Especially the raves that we used to throw back in the day and to know some of the warehouses. You know, Mike Donovan and myself, we we used to talk, you know, all the time about the raves that we threw. You know, and we were throwing raves, 1,800 people, 2,000 people. We, I mean, we had insurance. You know, we had million-dollar insurance policy, but... What happens if, you know, five people get hurt or 10 people get hurt? That million dollars is nothing, Yeah. you know, but the safety of everyone, man, is huge. It's yeah. huge. And it's, it's some of those warehouses that some of the like <laughs> industrial waste warehouses, you yeah. know, like tapping into electric into those warehouses and things like that. And just all of those people running around and, you know, not re- in their right mind. It's like... Right. That's that's scary. When we talk about it today, we're like, man, we are so lucky. Nothing serious happened, and you know, there's no way that I would throw an event today. I might throw a house party or even like a smaller party with like 50 or so friends if need to. But all those friends that I have, I know, are very responsible. We're gonna have a good time, and that's that. And it's going to be a safe environment. Yeah, you know. But when you get into, you know. I thought I was really happy to hear that they prioritized people's safety, safety. rather than just making yeah. it a thing for its own yeah. sake. They're there right? for crowd control and for yeah. safety, and it's that's awesome that they did that. Of course, they received some backlash for that, but they defended their decision. Uh, the police chief constable, his name is Mark Collins, he said police officers are highly trained to safely deal with these types of challenges, and on this occasion— the most appropriate action was prioritizing containment of the event to reduce the amount of revelers arriving in the area. We're working with partners to improve the intelligence picture about these dynamic events so resources can be deployed as effectively as possible. 
uh, following this event, we're reviewing the force's response to illegal re- uh, response to illegal raves to minimize their impact on local residents. So yeah, good for them. I mean, they they did their job as of keeping people safe. Safe, you right? Know? Yeah, and that's what they're supposed to do. Um, you know, it's me myself as a promoter. I can understand because some of these people that are throwing raves, it's it's expensive to throw an event. And to, mm-hmm. to, to be in code with everything, you know, to have the right, the right barricades and the, and the right stage requirements. And, you know, if you have stairs going up to the stage and you, there's a lot of safety issues and a lot of hoops you have to jump through and hurdles you have to jump over and it, that those costs add up yeah, to do all that stuff. So it's a lot cheaper for me to just go in my backyard, my fenced in backyard here and invite a couple hundred friends over and throw a quick rager and, yeah, you know, have a nice day. You know, of course that would be awesome. And that's, that's fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, somebody comes into my backyard. I don't know. They go to leave my backyard, trip over a rock, bust their four front teeth out. <laughs> I'm getting sued. Yep. You it's know? way too easy. Yeah. You know, and uh, I get it. Uh, a lot of people that do complain about those things and not being able to throw a, a quote-unquote legal underground party, they're not looking at those aspects. They just yeah. want a place to go, party, and not be messed with from the cops or anybody else, and they don't think about anything else. They don't think about the... Yeah. The, Here's what bothers me about it, though. Like, so I don't know what it is about Wales, but Gwent Police, they're in South Wales, also issued a warning. They're calling for people to be aware of signs of an illegal event. So they said they can turn antisocial with large-scale disorder and criminal damage and substance abuse taking place and so on. Uh, so they said it's vital, it's vital that we obtain information and intelligence at the earliest opportunity. Timely information about suspicious activity or plans to hold an illegal rave enables us to plan ahead and take swift, effective action. <sighs> And that sounds a lot like, like if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Like we, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like snitch, right? But I mean, not only that, but it's like I, I get it. But at the same time, like in, like we said earlier, anywhere where you have a gathering of people listening to music, you're going to have drugs and mm-hmm. fights Actually, yeah, and any of that kind of stuff. And so when they start targeting, they start saying words that are very vaguely defined like mm-hmm. raves, raves or ravers. Mm-hmm. It's like, then all of a sudden it's like you can use that as a weapon to shut down anything that you don't like just because there's a beat playing right. or something, you mm-hmm. know, and we've seen this before. Yep. The anti-rave act. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not new. <laughs> yeah. So the, the so- like they're, they're, you know, I can go to a rock concert. I can go to a country concert. You know, the guy next yep. to me will, probably have 10 beers and a couple joints yep you know and and whatever else he decides to do don't i hate the fact that they just pinpoint one specific uh like go to a grateful dead cover band (laughs) show and see what you see there right absolutely (laughs) see what you see in the parking lot right (laughs) you know um but it's um I, i i i i will never understand why they just they just go after electronic music and put electronic music in the headlines. Cause that's what, I mean, mm-hmm. that's what everybody knows raves as, you know? 
Canada's not immune either. Their Edmonton City Council recently called for what they called an immediate moratorium on raves. So this one comes from globalnews.ca. The administration suggests the city amend business license bylaw 13138 to ban, quote, electronic music and dance parties referred to as raves until such time as a thorough review of these events, including licensing and permit regulations, can be conducted. If the city council does indeed impose this moratorium on raves, the council will move on to consider whether city-owned facilities should continue to host these events altogether. Wow. Really? Yeah. So, (laughs) to ban, quote, electronic music and dance parties referred to as raves. Wow. Let's not get too specific, right? Right. (laughs) And these are licensed events? Did I hear that properly? Mm, uh, Even if they're licensed events or, or... it's a. They want to amend a business license bylaw, so I guess so. So seems like yeah. So you need a business license if in order illegal, to throw a rave. Yeah, if it was illegal, it. Would. I mean, that's kind of cool, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> I got a business license on my wall to throw raves. Right, that's yeah. pretty sweet. Rave license, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, still, man, just targeting. Well, before we get too up in arms about that. Luckily, they came to their senses about oh, okay, it. Cool, cool. Uh, you didn't tell me that part. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I had to get Got you amped all up hyped first. Up. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, they put a halt on the rave ban. Their councilman, Scott McKean, said, uh, so we can continue to party. We got a really good response from the industry and from passionate enthusiasts today to tell us, and I think remind us too, that we were maybe looking too closely at one element in our entertainment sector. Good hey, for yeah. you. Yes. Thank you, Scott. At the recent meeting, McKean spoke out about how prohibition simply does not work. People are going to get intoxicated in some context, and we can't change that. As much as we don't want people to use illicit drugs, they are going to. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure they're well-informed of the perils of doing so, especially mixing it with alcohol. Perfect. Absolutely. I mean, they they do it more when it's illegal than it is when it's legal. Mm Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's been tested. Yeah, it has. <laughs> and I believe that's... Uh, I watched something. I, I completely forget what it was, but it, it was... I want to say it was in Amsterdam where they give... Man, I don't even know if I want to talk about it or not, but they give heroin addicts mm-hmm. a place to go do their heroin. Yep. They give them safe needles, Clean give needles. them a place to do it and, and things like that. Um, and that was when one of the guys was talking in the documentary, he said, you know, he said, we have less overdoses. We have less problems with drugs because we legalize these things. All the people that now that it's legal really could care less to do it. And less violence surrounding the transactions and use. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I'll never condone doing heroin. You know, oh, that yeah. was just something that I saw on, yeah. on the, on that episode, but yeah, you're going to have more people doing it and doing it in a shadier manner yeah. if it's illegal than it was, if it would be legal or in a controlled environment. Controlled. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And this is also kind of where, uh, outfits like dance safe, mm-hmm. for example, come in. Uh, we're not associated with dance safe in any way, but, uh, just to to throw that in the mix, they are a company who does this. You know, they go to these events and provide testing kits for MDMA and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that, which is controversial, but, um, you know, it, it can save lives. Right. And it, at a certain point, you, you've got to wonder what's more important. 
All right, I've got, uh, you know, this isn't the first time that Canada's dealt with this. Uh, Toronto, actually, this is a cool story. So Toronto's electronic music community successfully fought a rave ban way back in 2000. And the way they did it was by throwing a rave outside of City Hall. <laughs> so this, okay. is a, this is a little bit long, so I apologize, but it's a really cool story. And, and it originally comes from Thump, and this is like a an edited version, but I'll post a link in the show notes because it's a, a pretty fascinating story. So Toronto's 62nd mayor, Mel Lastman, made it his mission to crack down on the rave scene and positioned himself against counselors like Olivia Chow, who attempted to stand up for the scene by comparing it to previous movements like hippies in the 60s. They started a very public media campaign, smearing raves, calling them havens for drug use, recalled corporate lawyer Will Chang. There was one press conference I remember where Fantino stood in front of a table, table covered in guns and knives and tried to claim that this is what you found at raves. It later turned out that those weapons had actually been seized, seized at some illegal after-hours bar. We were trying to become more legitimate at the same time as the city and the authorities were seemingly trying to make it more difficult to do so, remembers Ryan Kruger, who was a member of the committee. We were going into city-owned properties and working with the police for paid-duty officers working with the city on getting permits. We wanted to go legit because our parties were getting big enough that we needed to. So the collective decided that the best response would be to throw a protest party outside of City Hall at Nathan Phillips Square. The event was named iDance, and it was scheduled for August 1st, 2000. When it came to planning and executing the rally, the TDSC built on what they'd learned, throwing parties with DJs, sound, lighting, and security companies donating their services for free. If I remember correctly, there was a loophole that allowed us to move forward because it was designed as a protest and not as a for-profit event, Kruger explains. One of the key aspects is that we had a lot of speakers, and it wasn't just DJs all along. The whole point was showing a bunch of people having a great time because they love the music and not because they're drug addicts. The event drew a massive crowd of 20,000 people and went off without a hitch. The lineup included... Let's see, Derek Carter, Miss Honey Dijon, Bad Boy Bill, uh, had D&B names there, Ed Rush and Optical, um, Jumpin' Jack Frost, and a couple of local, you know, hometown heroes, and they put a giant disco ball over the square. <laughs> That's amazing. So it also says, speeches between acts not only featured representatives from the scene, but also former mayors, Barbara Hall and John Sewell, who were both anti-ban. Other than some dancing in the fountain, the ravers were on their best behavior, likely a result of community peer pressure to put forward a good image and combat perpetuating stereotypes. Yeah, good for them. Right. <laughs> As a result of the protest and the media campaign, the ban was overturned at, a, at council by a massive margin of 50 to 4 the next day. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, anytime you can put 20,000 people in one area and not one problem happen, but everybody having a good time, yep. how can you how can you not yeah. go for that? Yeah, it wasn't like a bunch of people like passed out on the sidewalk. <laughs> That's what got me involved. Like really drew, I mean, other than a room of a couple thousand people in a warehouse really loving what the DJ is doing and in tune with the DJ. But other than that, there was no problems no fights, no real bad issues or anything like that happening at those events. Yeah. I mean, yeah, plur, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So there was one more quote that I appreciated. It said, it wasn't, a, it wasn't until a decade later that the pendulum would swing back again and dance started getting big again, points out Kruger. 
But when it came back as EDM, it was a different kind of thing. It wasn't independent promoters trying to claim legitimacy this time. Now it was the major corporations becoming involved and bringing with them automatic legitimacy. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that uh, Tripp's not here to talk about this one because this is right, right in his wheelhouse. I mean, we can answer stuff. it with one <laughs> word, money. Mm-hmm. That's that's the bottom line. Money talks. Yeah. I mean, you do something outside of the courthouse, bring, you know, 10 DJs and 20,000 people show up. I mean, obviously, corporate's going to see dollar bills yeah. everywhere on those people. You know, why not? All right, we're coming to the close of this episode, but I do want to end this with one last story. And, you know, though I get frustrated and concerned when people start going after these broadly underdefined targets, you know, words like ravers, it's important to realize that there are legitimate reasons to give these illegal events a scrutinizing look. For a good example of this, we need to take a look at the ghost ship tragedy in Oakland, California. The venue had several years of questionable history and legitimacy. In 2014, the Oakland fire captain, George Freeland, sent a report to the fire marshal's office warning of disastrous conditions. Now, there was one tenant named Derek Almina who lied to the police about living inside the warehouse, which was caught on a video by police body camera. Now, in February of 2015, the city of Oakland received a complaint that the abandoned warehouse had been converted into an illegal residence, as well as information claiming that a man with a shotgun was hiding near the warehouse. That call was made by a former tenant named Shelley Mack, who said in an interview that officers had been inside and seen the shoddy conditions of the venue. She's criticized Oakland police for failing to take action. Why would all these dots not connect, she said. There were a million dots. In March of 2015, a police officer responded to a report that alcohol and drugs were being sold during an illegal rave at the venue. The officer didn't enter the warehouse or issue any citations, but the police were later called back after receiving a complaint that there were, quote, several subjects inside his warehouse refusing to leave. But in a 911 call, the operator was told that there were 15 people barricaded inside being held there by the owners and that there were sounds of tasers and threatening remarks. During its occupancy, Ghost Ship had been illegally modified against code. There were unapproved sleeping rooms and a kitchen created on the second floor, partition walls added, and makeshift paint booths. The building had exposed unsafe wiring, fixtures, and electrical panels. City records showed that the warehouse had received 10 code enforcement complaints and 39 code enforcement inspections since 2004. Fire inspectors had also visited the building 16 times since 1999. And as recently as November of 2016, the city had been investigating an illegal housing complaint at Ghost Ship. A code inspector claimed that he couldn't gain entrance to the property, though he did cite the building's owner for the condition of the sidewalk and the front yard. But as for the condition of the building itself, many of these problems were left unaddressed. Many of the citations given for the condition of the building happened after it was too late. On December 1st, 2016... A massive and horrific fire broke out in the building during a dance party being held there on the second floor, from which there was no escape save for a makeshift staircase fashioned out of wooden pallets. There was no clear entry or exit path, making it difficult to escape. The blaze ended up killing 36 people in their 20s and 30s. Photographer Bob Mule told the East Bay Times, I literally felt my skin peeling 
and my lungs being suffocated by smoke. I couldn't get the fire extinguisher to work. Now, last week it was reported that Max Harris and Derek Almena, the two members of the Ghost Ship Collective being held responsible for the fire, have been sentenced to nine and six years in prison after pleading no contest. You'll remember Derek's name from the beginning of the story. That was the guy who lied to the police about living in the venue. Now here's a clip from Almena's lawyer following the court hearing. Mr. Almena pled no contest to 36 counts of involuntary manslaughter. The plea bargain with both the prosecution and his honor calls for a sentence of 12 years, but it's a split sentence. So that means he'll be subject to bail, to jail for nine years and a supervised release period of three. That means he'll be out. That if you count the time he's done with respect to the nine year sentence, he has approximately three and a half more years. And my client is a prisoner who has fulfilled all of his duties and obligations, so we anticipate that he will be out in three and a half years. And here's a similar clip from Harris's lawyer. We feel that this sentence, that this plea is appropriate um, for the degree of Max's involvement. Uh, as Mr. Getz had said earlier, if this had happened to one of our loved ones, obviously we would want uh, anyone who was involved to be in jail, to be in prison for the rest of their lives. No amount of time in jail or in prison uh, could make this right. Now, of course, this is an extreme case, okay? Not every rave is a ticking time bomb. Not every party is a pending disaster, but the fact of the matter is that 36 people died because of negligence. Now, whether the onus lies on Derek and Max or the city inspectors or the Oakland PD or the building owner, I'll leave that for you to decide. And when I hear of cities targeting raves or electronic dance parties or something like that, I get up in arms. It worries me because it's not fair. It suddenly becomes really easy to target anything that you don't want or like, whether it's a menace or not. It becomes a tool that's easy to abuse. But we can't simply dismiss the concerns either. This ghost ship story is proof that there's a reason behind the laws, regulations, and safety inspections that are to be enforced at these venues. And while people on this show have often waxed poetic about the golden age of the rave, and as important as I think that that movement was, it's critical that we realize that there's a reason Big EDM took over. I'll never question the spirit of the rave, but maybe dance music had to go legit, and God forbid, corporate, for the reasons demonstrated in the story. Thank you for listening. This has been the Passionate DJ Podcast.
uh, Mary Alexander said, uh, to hear them say, plead guilty, basically, that was uh, what we wanted to hear. The sentencing part of it, you know, that's questionable. You know, 36 lives.